0: There comes a point when safety becomes dangerous, and I believe we are very firmly at that point now.
1: Four. The budget was a great start, but that's what it was. It was a start. I think they need to concentrate and double down on levelling up. Three. I love my kids, but can you go now, please?
0: Two. Recollections may vary. (laughs) And I think that's palace speak for liar, liar, your pants are on fire. One.
2: Lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson Hello, and me, Liam Halligan. Schools are back, but kids are wearing masks and some are being sent home because they're testing positive for COVID. With over a third of us vaccinated in the UK and daily deaths from or with the virus down almost 90% on their mid-January peak when will lockdown end. On or after the 12th of April, non-essential shops were open, we're told, with pubs and restaurants serving people outdoors. On or after the 17th of May, six people can meet up or two households indoors and you can eat or drink inside a pub or restaurant. <laughs> on or after the 21st of June, a Midsummer Night's Dream, all restrictions will end. But what does on or after actually mean? And co-pilot Pearson has news of that interview with Oprah Winfrey reached Planet Normal? Who cares about Meghan and Harry? I'm talking about that famous encounter when the Queen of US TV interviewed you.
0: She did indeed, but somehow I managed to not bring around the downfall of the monarchy, which I think was uh, <laughs> was quite good, really. There's still time. I was thinking earlier. I'm not. I'm not a monarchist, Liam, but I am an Elizabethist. I'm an Elizabeth II.ist.
2: A lesbian.
0: Oh, very good. Elizabethan, lesbian, exactly. Yeah, I mean, what a week. But before we come to that major bombshell from California, I mean, what's been going on here in the UK? I think we're delighted to have COVID thrown off the front pages. And as you said in your introduction, Liam, I mean, there were gale force winds across the United Kingdom, and those were the combined size of the relief of parents who don't have to do (laughs) homeschooling anymore.
2: I love my kids, but Can you go now, please?
0: Yes, exactly. One friend said that she dropped her too often. She said she did it so fast and pushed them out of the car. She said it was more like a drive-by shooting than it was like a... (laughs)
2: It's like one of those old post bags on the train. You just sort of leave your kid hanging by the scruff of their neck.
0: (laughs) Literally chucked them out of the seatbelts. But I think we we should remember, uh, yes, of course, it's supposed to be the start of unrolling lockdown, hooray. British children are among the last kids in the world to go back to school. I mean, kids in other European countries have been in school since August or September. So many of our children have only had three months education in the last 12 months. And that's going to be a huge issue going forward. I mean, my problem with it really is we we've got them wearing masks in classrooms as as you said and not long ago boris described the idea of teaching children in masks as nonsensical that seems to have gone by the wayside and the other thing we've we've got which i flagged up a, a couple of weeks ago on planet normal is this mass testing of children without symptoms and what good is that going to do when the prevalence of the virus in the UK is really really low now and I just found this bit in the British Medical Journal actually in in December which was talking about these lateral flow tests that are now uh, children are having to do twice a week and it says the use of the lateral flow test for picking up asymptomatic cases is not one of the manufacturer's intended uses Instructions supplied say that it's intended for the qualitative detection of antigens from SARS-CoV-2 in human nasal swabs or throat swabs from individuals who are suspected of COVID-19, who are showing in the first five days of onset of symptoms. So basically, we are testing millions of children who have no sign of having anything wrong with them at all. And the latest results hot off the presses from student testing at the University of Birmingham and universities in Scotland. Are you ready for this? I'm ready showed that tests had a sensitivity of just 3% and that 58% of positive test results were false. Now, if you multiply that, even failed maths O-level here can figure out that if you multiply that figure nationwide, you're going to get an awful lot of kids sent home and all those parents who chuck the kids out of the car are going to see them trooping back. So I'm concerned about that. And I'm concerned that children are being used to sustain project fear when there's hardly any need for any COVID fear at all.
2: We've said this before, haven't we? The dangers of the false positives from Mm. the lateral flow tests and indeed the PCR tests. I think this whole episode, while no one's denying the fatalities and the fact that COVID is a nasty respiratory disease, It's almost as as if mass testing inside and outside of schools has led to a kind of case-demic rather than a pandemic. If you test lots and lots and lots and lots more people, then the number of cases will go up. And lots of those cases are false positive. You know What happened to the old-fashioned idea that it's actually quite good if a lot of people get the disease, given that they haven't got symptoms and there are no side effects, because that builds herd immunity? Or maybe we're not allowed to use that phrase. So I do think there's an issue there. And are we going to learn that lesson before we have the next respiratory disease beyond regular flu hitting the UK and other parts of the world? And I think the other really big issue, and I feel sorry for teachers and particularly head teachers, because the government has said, well, masks in school, kind of, maybe kind of voluntary, if you want, don't force the kids. And and of course that is an a nightmare to try and discipline and police that, for want of a better word, police with a small P, which teachers have to do. What do they say to kids if the kids just say, oh, I'm not wearing the mask? I and mean, what's going to stop the whole of the class taking their masks off? Will it only be the dorky kids that wear masks? You know how cruel some yeah. kids can be to other yeah. kids. And in the end, it's teaching kids that the rules don't really matter. Either say you have to wear a mask or you don't have to wear a mask. This kind of halfway house It's like a decision by committee. I think the government should have come down one side or the other. We both think that we shouldn't have masks in schools. But if that is the scientific advice and the government wants to back that scientific advice, don't go in halfway. Otherwise, you're teaching kids that the rules don't matter. And that's storing up all kinds of much greater problems.
0: One science teacher explained it to me very well. He said... It's no good. It's really pointless them wearing masks. They won't even wear them properly. Can you imagine you? Can you imagine Halligan, age 14, with one of these, you know, <laughs> Well, look scrotty- how we wear
2: ties. It's kind of tied. It's down by your <laughs> belly button somewhere, isn't it, as a badge of honour. And the thin end is out rather than the thick end. It certainly was like that in the 70s and the 80s.
0: But what this scientist said, Liam, which is very interesting, he said it was a way of the government getting parents and children to descend the panic ladder one rung at a time. So we're talking about about using these tactics, really, to diffuse the panic that many parents still feel, I believe, wrongly. And coming back to our one of our favourite themes, really, I mean, amazingly, we had a lot of fan mail for your coverage of the budget last week. I mean, let's that just Don't sound so
2: surprised. <laughs> but, just because you never read the business section of The Telegraph, it's not my fault.
0: <laughs> I've seen your picture in it. I mean, you know, let's... <laughs> Only in the sort of bottom of your
2: cat litter tray. <laughs>
0: Exactly. If if, if only you knew how how true that. I know quantitative easing, even if I don't know how many Ts it's got in it. But but that point we were making last week, this painfully slow rollout. So basically the idea is the schools have gone back on Monday. Let's allow five weeks, why don't you, until we unlock the next step. And this is, I, I don't know if you saw Chris Whitty, giving another of his doom-laden warnings this week about how if we break any of the sort of the roadmaps, if we hasten any of these steps out of lockdown, even though Uh, the figures are really suggesting now that we could lift a lot of lockdown measures much sooner. The sort of Chris Whitty warning this week was, you know, people will die. And as I wrote in my Telegraph column, which people are going to die, Liam? Because we're we're slightly running out of people who aren't actually protected. I mean, I, I went to have my vaccine this morning. You did. And I think a lot of people will feel the same as me, that they'll be having the vaccine, not because they feel particularly threatened by COVID. I don't feel, I think, I believe I had, it back in the spring, but because to give reassurance to older people. And then this week, Liam, really the government, I think they they're on a very sticky wicket here because there was a complaint this week, wait for this, that four in 10 octogenarians who've had the vaccine are, guess what, meeting up with family and friends. And I'm thinking why is that bad? If you're in your 80s, you know, every week, every day, every week is, is precious. Time is precious. And these people who we now know have up to 90% protection from the first dose of the vaccine, either AstraZeneca or Pfizer. It's absolutely miraculous levels of protection and it seems to really also have very, very good effect on lack of transmission. So these elderly people are, goodness me, you know, sitting in the kitchen, even having tea and biscuits. I mean, how reckless can they possibly Come on. be?
2: sitting in the kitchen. One minute it's <laughs> hobnobs, the next minute they're out clubbing. They're going know, large. I know. I know. They're going to Ibiza. Yes. I mean come on, we can't have that. Raving Nans. That that it can't be allowed to happen, Alison. We've got to clamp down. Clamp Step down. away from the hobnobs. Step
0: away. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Put put down the rich tea as you know. Where where will it all end?
2: I do yeah. like rich tea. If yeah, you put like three if you tea. dunk three together mm. you can get them all in your mouth at once. Amazing. <laughs>
0: That is, that's the most Irish thing you've ever said. What honestly, doesn't it? But doesn't it get so soggy? It actually drops back. Yeah, it's into all in the, the timing. Tea. It's in the timing. It's all in the and timing. The wrist action. Yeah. It's
2: in. Then up. Then then you got to sort of turn your wrist round so the weight of them like keeps them together. <laughs> if they hang, then it's over. And don't put them out at right angles. No, no orthogonal to the orthodoxy with the dunk. <laughs> Rich T.
0: I just want to say, in response to Chris Whitty, are you ready for this? Or all right. In response to Chris Whitty, just quickly checking in with George, who Planet Normal listeners really, really appreciate. Can you remind us all?
2: George is a senior source within NHS England. George has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's stats. That's why you report them, Copilot Pearson. But we can't independently verify the numbers because they haven't been published yet. So we journalistically present them as claims.
0: Yeah, that's right. And George has sent us a fantastic update, really positive. This week saw a further 25% reduction in hospital beds occupied by COVID patients. Overall, there's been a 75% reduction in beds occupied since the peak on the 18th of January. Levels of occupancy are back down to what they were in late October. And that trend is showing no sign of abating. In fact... If you look at case numbers, Liam, from the daily updates, you will see that the entire country has case rates less than 200 per 100,000 and most are much, much lower than that. Only a few weeks ago, almost the entire map was maroon or dark blue, indicating case rates well in excess of 400 per 100,000 and over 800 per 100,000 in many areas.
2: So bed occupancy in general, sorry, is 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 low compared to other years, given that we're still at the back end of winter, right?
0: It's incredibly low. George says that hospitals are reporting 82% bed occupancy. That's yeah. generally COVID is only a tiny fraction of that now, which is incredibly low for any time of the year, but especially for the tail end of winter. But this is this is a really, really interesting thing coming back to that Doom-laden, Chris, witty thing. Nationally, we're at just seven percent COVID occupancy in hospitals. Seven percent COVID occupancy in hospitals. Liam, every single region has single-digit COVID occupancy. Wow. The combined admissions and inpatient diagnoses. You'll remember that a lot of people are sadly getting COVID in hospital now. Less than five hundred a day, an eighty-seven percent reduction on the peak daily admissions two months ago. And the ICU COVID bed occupancy has also fallen absolutely dramatically. And I just want to say these numbers are telling us that there is no problem now at all in the NHS. And you'll notice that Matt Hancock this week announced the closure of four Nightingale Hospitals. I thought it was quite funny that he announced the closure of four Nightingale Hospitals when, as we know, they'd barely been open. And that comes back to the fact these were total white elephants. They cost the British taxpayer £500 million. I mean, I know that's Rishi Sunak lunch money in the the greater scheme. Chump change,
2: chump change.
0: But there is a bigger point here, Liam. We know that poor infection control led to tens of thousands of people catching COVID in hospitals. We needed fever isolation hospitals, that time-honoured practice of keeping the infectious away from the other patients. And the failure to do that is, I think, when the history of this period is written, that's going to be what looms out at people. So I just want listeners to know that, Things are looking really good. And Chris Whitty's pessimism – I wrote this in the column, Liam. I know you commented on it. There comes a point when safety becomes dangerous. It becomes reckless to people's lives and the economy. And I believe we are very firmly at that point now.
2: And we began the episode, didn't we, Alison, talking about the dates, 12th of April, 17th of May, 21st of June, on or after restrictions will be eased. So the government's being very, very cautious – As you say, I think as it becomes clear that the pressure on the NHS from COVID at least is less and less, of course, there's a huge backlog of non-COVID treatments, as Mm. many of our listeners know and have written to us about. But as that becomes clear, I do think there'll be more and more pressure on the government and Boris Johnson in particular, not least from some members of his own cabinet and some of the backbenchers, the COVID recovery group, Mm. to open up soon it'll be interesting to see how he handles that but look we've talked about covid you've insulted my ethnicity as ever <laughs> careful you might be cancelled <laughs> um we've done the biscuit anecdote it's time to move on now we can resist it no longer mm-hmm. are you team megan or team liz
0: i don't think you need to ask me that <laughs> do you? I think before before we plunge into the the maelstrom of allegations spewed out from California, I think a hot runner for the phrase of the week, if not phrase of the year, comes courtesy of Buckingham Palace in its response to the Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah, which was... Here we go. Recollections may vary.
2: (laughs) I love it.
0: And I think that's palace speak for liar, liar, your pants are on fire. So if you ever pill me up on anything, I will say recollections may vary.
2: And I will say triangle dust eaters. In honour of Brian the Fisherman, new voyages to planet normal can mine our back catalogue to know what I mean.
0: Yes, they can indeed. So, yes, I mean made the headlines around the world absolutely extraordinary with Oprah. It wasn't really an interview, was it really? She she asked very nice questions and then didn't. It
2: wasn't journalism. It was it was show no. business. There was no proper I don't think examination of the claims that Meghan Markle was making. There were no follow-ups from Oprah Winfrey who of course owns the production company that's making the millions of dollars out of this fair, fair play to her I don't begrudge her that for one second she's an extremely talented woman but this is not journalism and it shouldn't be portrayed as journalism
0: but this was incredibly damaging to the monarchy at a point where we have a 94-year-old monarch. She's dealing with her husband of 73 years, is in hospital and a huge amount of stress, not to mention the small matter of a global pandemic, which has killed millions of people around the world, well, here at home. Thousands and thousands of people are worried about their livelihoods, worried about the mental impact on the elderly and on on the young. And we have Prince Harry complaining that his father cut him off, literally cut me off financially, 36-year-old male, uh, you know, boo-hooing that daddy wasn't paying the bills anymore after Harry had abandoned the job for which he was being paid. So so, uh, my sympathy was somewhat limited, I think. And I felt it was a very self-amazingly self-absorbed and, and unpleasantly vengeful interview. I mean, Megan named Duchess of Cambridge, Kate sort of very personal family anecdotes about who made who cry at the bridesmaids fitting. This is material that when it goes on in families, as it does in any stressful situation, people pick people up on it at the time or they sort it out behind closed doors. You don't share it with a worldwide television audience of of millions of people. It's caused massive, obviously, the repercussions are going to go on in the royal family for ages. Particularly what what struck most of us, I think, was this allegation of racism. Now, this is, first of all, there was the assertion that Archie, the, the baby, baby Sussex, had been denied the title of prince because he was mixed race. That is not factually correct I mean we can have differences of opinion about other things that were said but we know that Princess Anne's children and Prince Edward's children are not Prince and Princess
2: because they're not near enough to the line of succession are they not
0: near enough to the line of succession I think Archie and the new baby girl can become Prince and Princess when Prince Charles ascends to the throne but of course Oprah's American and this has gone down very very differently in America, you're actually looking at the number of Americans who believed it was appropriate for the couple to take part in the interview was 44% against 20% who didn't think it was appropriate. Whereas in Britain, 47% of us thought the interview was inappropriate mm. against just 21% to approve. And there have been opinion polls in the last couple of days. Big one. In the Daily Mail, I mean, absolutely hammering them and saying very, very large percentage of people even saying that Meghan and Harry should lose their titles. And I suppose what I'd say to you, Liam, is there they sit. What would they be without the crown? Okay, they ha- they are only of interest because they have titles. Harry's a prince, Meghan's a duchess, and they derive their power and prestige from the institution, which they devoted 90 minutes to slagging off.
2: I know you're angry about this and a lot of Telegraph readers and a lot of the country are very angry about this. I, too, think that the interview was extremely tawdry and self-promoting and I resent the idea that it's being presented as journalism. As a journalist, I, I resent that. Uh, I remember covering Princess Diana's funeral as a, as a newspaper reporter for the Financial Times, even the Financial Times was putting it on on its front page, and the image, the haunting image of Harry as a you know a, a young boy following his mother's coffin in the gaze of the world. Yeah. Now I also covered the wedding of of Meghan and Harry for for CNN, and I remember vividly the goodwill that was extended by the country towards them and no no reason why not. But it wasn't just an ordinary royal wedding. I think there was a particular feeling of celebration among the vast majority Mm. of people because she was somebody of mixed race and this was a new foray for the royal family and one which reflected, you know, our wonderfully diverse country and in general, in general, our ability as a country to integrate and have reasonably good, often very good, interracial relations. So I supported the idea of Meghan and Harry trying to create their own role. It must be a bit weird being a member of the royal family, but mm. in part of the modern world, particularly if you're not going to become king or queen, as, as Harry clearly wouldn't, given others in front of him. So I thought it was a good idea if they wanted to step down from their duties and do less. I really supported that. And after a while, the royal family, which can be quite curmudgeonly, we saw a lot of kind of emotional lack of acumen during Diana's funeral, of course, with the flag. And we saw a bit of emotional um, lack of acumen around harry and Meghan as well as they tried to step away but i think for at least from where i stand i'm not an expert in these matters the palace did try and accommodate them in a way coming to a financial settlement which the country would be happy with after all we're paying all the bills Mm. so not cutting them off completely recognizing that they're royalty and there's national security implications and they're human beings and i thought a compromise was reached but clearly behind closed doors something has gone wrong but when that goes wrong behind closed doors as you said in your column you don't wash your expensive monogrammed (laughs) Monogrammed linen linen, in in public and it's awful the way that this is divided along generational lines Mm. uh, and it's also awful how this is divided along race lines i mean i speak as somebody from an immigrant family i speak as somebody from a community that had a great deal of racism thrown in its face for centuries in this country, even in living memory. And this isn't a a sob story at all. But all I would say is that I think race relations in the UK are so much better than they were and are better than almost anywhere in the world. Yes, we have problems and flare-ups. Yes, there are individual acts of racism which are heinous. And obviously, I really am upset that they happen. But to promote around the world that the royal family and Britain as a whole is a racist society, I think is beyond unfortunate. It's actually deeply, deeply damaging and spiteful to say that. Because I don't think you can live in this country and honestly say, as somebody from an immigrant community, among whom I count myself, I may be white, but look at my name, my face. You know, I'll always be seen by a lot of people in the UK as an Irish person, even though I was born in London. And Irish people would say, and the vast majority, I think also, of people from other immigrant communities, if you talk to them honestly, would say, on balance, this is a tolerant and welcoming country towards people of whatever ethnicity they are.
0: No, well well said and and the irony of course Liam is that the queen has dedicated so much of her almost 68 year reign to building up the commonwealth she enjoys these very affectionate bonds with Countries around the world, and 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 it's apart from anything else, it's hugely important to a post-Brexit Britain, isn't it? These countries in Africa and South Asia, which will be doing immensely important trade deals with, and now after the interview, the world is being given this idea that the British royal family. It's racist, and as you said, I wrote about the royal wedding and you know that marvelous kingdom choir singing "Stand by Me." And the, do you remember that Chicago-born bishop? It was brilliant. That? It was absolutely Absolute. brilliant.
2: I, it makes me well up just thinking about it. I
0: know it was just magical multicultural celebration. The media coverage was absolutely ecstatic. And I ask you, Liam, has any couple ever burned so fast through so much? goodwill. Now, I think just to mention this, Harry has great reasons to hate the, the tabloid press or the media in general. He He's enraged, I think, that his mother was hounded to her death by the paparazzi. And I understand that. And he absolutely wanted to protect his beloved wife from the same coverage. This is not to defend the tabloid coverage, but I would say that Any woman who's dared to join the Windsors has got her fair share of unpleasantness and flack. And that's just the way it is. And I would say that Kate Middleton, you know, there was a lot of snobbery about her family. Her parents had had worked as airline crew. So it was doors to manual. Do you remember all that? And when the Duchess of York, when Sarah Ferguson joined. So so there has been a lot of very unfortunate picking on female members of the royal family. And I think that Meghan got a lot of that, but that was partly because of high-handed behaviour. I mean, where they live, Liam, mean, you mentioned this generational divide, didn't you? Younger people tend to be team Meghan and Older people tend to be team Liz. And I think what we are what we are in now is this age where feelings trump facts. So it's speak your truth, but only if it's the approved version of the truth, which is the woke values, isn't it? Which is the, you know, I'm going to mention racism. I'm going to mention mental health. You know, I have struggles with my own mental health. I have Huge sympathy for people who do. But I am really anxious about the idea that you would use those things to protect yourself from any rejoinders or criticism. And there is this matter still under investigation that the Duchess of Sussex, they gave her Liam. They didn't give her Sir Peregrine Pompous to guide her through her early stages in the royal family. She had an all, a nearly all-female team, two of those young women left under a cloud. And there are allegations that they were bullied out of their jobs. And th- these are very serious allegations. And in the interview, Megan said, oh, I wasn't protected by the courtiers, they protected the other members of the family, but they didn't protect me. My strong sense is that the reason that those rumours didn't surface is very much that, that that they were protecting her. But I think that, this whole idea of speak your truth, they've got more in common with Donald Trump than they know. You know, we're living in the era of fake news. If you feel something strongly enough, if you say, This is my truth, then other people's truths, I mean, what Meghan and Harry feel, that's the truth. That's because it's emotional and they feel it strongly. The more dignified, never complain, never explain truths of the royal family. They are lesser now. They, they, are, they are not as worthy of support. And, and I balk at that, quite frankly.
2: Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As a Telegraph's Chief Political Correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Last week, we welcomed Lady Carnarvon to Planet Normal, who joined us from Highclere Castle, the real-life Downton Abbey. Fiona Carnarvon's well-judged comments on the problems of running a visitor-focused heritage business during lockdown proved extremely popular. We look forward to hearing from her again.
0: And going to stay in her castle.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This week, another business perspective, this time not from rural Berkshire, but the UK's industrial northeast, a region that benefited mightily in last week's budget. Ben Houchen was elected as Tees Valley Mayor in May 2017. He's still 34, and this Conservative has become synonymous with levelling up, as the Tories try to retain the red wall seats they won from Labour in the December 2019 election, not least in the North East. I started by asking Ben Houchen about the 1997 general
1: election, Tony Blair's landslide, which he watched as a young lad. The first memory I have of any politics whatsoever was the general election day in 1997, and it captured my imagination. So I, I think really the start of the fall of the Red Wall was was the election result in '97, because for let's not forget for decades before that you'd had our five local authorities had all been Labour-run. Certainly since well since, since the war, Middlesbrough, for example, had never been anything other than majority Labour. And really what they had in 1997 was no more excuses. They had local control of councils and had done for decades. They then had 13 years of a Labour government. You had a prime minister, you had Peter Mandelson and others, all local MPs, never mind in charge of the country. And after 13 years, I think a lot of people started to look around and think, well, hang on, what, what have we got out of this? And there was no way, as they had done in the 90s, in the 80s, be able to blame Thatcher or a conservative government. And I think people started to wake up to the fact that it isn't necessarily in their best interest to vote Labour in the in the northeast of England.
2: Then suddenly in December 2019, Blair's seat of Sedgefield fell. Darlington, of course, Blythe, Middlesbrough South, Durham Northwest, even Redcar. Wow, the, the the epitome of you know heavy industry tea side fell to a Conservative MP. What changed?
1: Well, like I say, every single election, both local, national and European, Labour went backwards, uh, have gone backwards since 2005. And we thought we were there in, in 2017, actually, but obviously we all know what happened uh, in that general election. But also, let's not forget, I was elected five weeks before the general election in 2017. And, uh, you know, we did win... A lot of areas that we failed to capture at the general election the thing that changed everything was was brexit it was the thing that broke that historical traditional family link with the labour party in the northeast where a lot of people just felt that their views and their feelings about how their life was going and how their communities were going that link was completely severed with the labour party and you know to be fair to him boris johnson and the conservative party did a fantastic job in capturing that imagination and then pairing that with something like leveling up meant that I think a lot of people in the northeast are, are looking at giving the conservative party a chance but all it is at the moment is just a chance I don't necessarily think it's it's a permanent move at the moment.
2: You were born in 1986 Ben astonishingly young if I may say so educated in the northeast proudly you showed a lot of promise as a rugby union player before you were injured and then you became Tees Valley mayor in May 2017. How did that happen because I've talked to lots of people on Teeside about that you you seem to come from nowhere and you emerged as a Conservative. What made you stand as Tees Valley Mayor and what made you stand as a Conservative?
1: Well, I'd always been, like I said, interested in politics um, since I was 10 or 11 years old. And I was always keen not to get involved in politics as a child, so I actively stayed away from it because I don't necessarily think that's the most well-rounded of upbringings that you can have. (laughs) Um, So I was keen to go to university, I got a job as a lawyer, um, started my own business. I did all of those things that I really, in my head, wanted to do. I was always aware, certainly something my father and my mother always talked about is, you know, everybody hates a career politician. And I always thought at some point I would like to get involved in politics. And so I never wanted to be accused of somebody who had never had a real job or real life experience. But let's also not pretend I was involved with the, with politics before 2017. I was a local councillor on Stockton Borough Council um, from 2011. You stood for Parliament too, right? Yeah, yeah. Sir Stuart Bell, uh, when he passed away, in 2012, I stood in the Middlesbrough by election. I was also on the the list for the European elections in the northeast. Uh, I was number two to Martin Callanan in the in the elections in 2014. So, you know, I've been around the block a few times. The Tees Valley mayoral election was one of those things that I just felt I had to do. I, like as you said, Liam, having been born raised, you know, my the paternal houching line has been in Middlesbrough for the last 150 years. It just felt wrong for me not to try and at least stand and give it a go on a on a regional level, because I do have family right across from Darlington, Redcar and Hartlepool and everywhere in between.
2: And tell us how you become
1: mayor. You managed to do
2: a deal to secure the ownership of the local airport, famously.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we did in our campaign is, you know, mayors were a very new thing, still are, and legislation was only passed a few months before the election was due to take place. So there was no information campaign about what this role actually was. So we decided, one, what is a very big, big local issue, the local airport, and two, what could also demonstrate the powers and the money and the influence that a regional mayor could have. And that came together, I think, in a bit of a perfect storm with our pledge to to save Teesside Airport from closure, which it was threatened with closure under its current owners, having uh, the local authorities completely messed up the ownership over the last 15 years of that. And, you know, we were, we were fortunate as well. I mean, we obviously had a pledge that had huge cut-through But again, as I said before, five weeks before the general election, the Conservative Party, you know, we were 23, 24 points ahead in the polls. Both of those things coming together came to a perfect storm, which meant that um, we managed to sneak the election. And since then, we've not looked back.
2: But that airport deal, it combined some private sector money, commercial and legal acumen on your part, and also the state working together to bring prosperity to your region.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's the type of politician that I, I think that I am in that, I like to think that I get things done. I'm not that interested in having large ideological battles with opponents or even colleagues. People don't care about any of that stuff. What people care about at every level is just people doing things. So at a local council level, what they want is they want the bins emptied. They want the services to be run well. That's all they want. They don't care about the infighting that happens at local council meetings. It's the same on a national stage. You know, what they want is to know that the public finance is being run properly. They want to know that they're going to deliver on the pledges that they said. They want real things to happen. And so I uh, was fortunate enough to be in a position where I was able to deliver on the pledges that I set forward. And that, that's helped me create a credibility within the private and public sector because having delivered on something like that which let's be honest nobody thought i was going to be able to deliver upon has opened new doors to attract new investment new ideas new opportunities and you know it, it is starting to shine a light on side as well as a place that is trying to do something different and trying to to steal a march on its on its neighbors to make sure that we we can compete get the jobs and the investment that we need in this area which let's be honest governments of both colors have neglected for, for decades now
2: i think it's more than that ben i mean teesside has long been, with all respect, one of the poorer parts of the UK, despite its industrial prowess and, and a historic pride in its role in the development of the country commercially over over centuries. And yet it's now being held up as the kind of poster child uh, for levelling up. Ground Zero, if you like, the Tories' campaign to make us a less unequal country seems to be starting on, on side. You had an incredible budget last week, not just the awarding to Teesside and Humberside, by the way, just down the coast of Freeport status, but also the Treasury moving part of its campus to Darlington, a relatively small town.
1: But how important was that budget to Teesside that we saw last week? It was it was huge. That is a and I've said this before, but that is a day that people will look back on in years to come and see that as a new dawn for our region, you know, people will no longer, I think um, elsewhere in the country, look at Teesside and say, well, where's Teesside? What are they actually about? What is, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's anywhere. It's between Newcastle and Leeds. I genuinely think people will look back in 10 years' time and pinpoint that as a day where all of a sudden Teesside becomes a place, not just for the Freeport or Treasury, not just really about a mayor that bought an airport, but the things that those things will catalyse will see us play a huge role, for example, in the government's net zero agenda. I mean, the Freeport will catalyse a number of global investors now coming to Teesside in things like offshore wind, hydrogen, carbon capture. And Teesside will be the place in years, well, it is now, but will be more known in years to come as the powerhouse of the net zero in industrial revolution. This is the place where it will be powered. This is where you will come if you want to fight climate change and if you want to do your bit to help the UK meet its 2050 target, you're probably going to be looking at a career in Teesside, which is a fantastic place to be given, I suppose, that really outdated and stereotypical view that people have of this region of dirty steelworks, chimneys, coal mines. You know, we're really using those great skills, those great talents of local people, but in a really 21st century way, which helps us actually give back to UK PLC rather than forever feeling like, You know, we need help. We can actually give help to the rest of the country.
2: Let me just outline for listeners part of what's happening on Teesside. With Freeport status, you think you can now get that wind turbine factory as part of the South Tees Development Corporation. You've got the deep water port there on Teesside. You've got the site of the largest wind farm offshore wind farm in the world, just 60 miles off. T side, to what extent does the Freeport announcement bring all those aspirations together and make them more likely
1: to happen? It's the thing that will help accelerate and catalyze the investment in jobs. So even before the Freeport, as you've just outlined Liam, we've got the largest Brownfield site in Western Europe, four and a half thousand acres of developable land. Within the next three months, we'll have more than 14 million square feet of approved planning in place and signed off for logistics and manufacturing space we've got the deepest river on the east coast of the uk we've obviously got the political will and the private sector will to make something happen uh, and as you say Dogger Bank, the world's largest wind farm starts to be constructed in 2023 just 60 miles off the coast of Redcar. what the free port will do is it will help manufacturers make a decision to come to teesside rather than elsewhere in the world because of the tax breaks right because as you've referred to there's one manufacturer we're talking to who we have a deal in place with we have agreed terms but one of those terms was it is subject to us getting a free port because the value to that manufacturing business, which is a large manufacturing process, so big capital infrastructure, so high business rates, capital allowances will be of beneficial to them. Uh, the buildings and structures tax relief will be of benefit to them. But also it's a labour intensive process. So the abolition of employees' national insurance contributions over a 10 year period is many tens of millions of pounds to them. So that is a manufacturer that we're hoping to announce very shortly, which will see us get that investment in Teesside and indeed the UK, rather than it staying or going actually to mainland Europe, which shows the benefits of a free port. It's not the thing. It's it's not the thing that solves everybody's problems, but it will be the thing that tips the balance for an investment decision between coming here rather than necessarily going to North America, the Far East or even mainland Europe. What would you say, Ben,
2: to those coastal areas and inland areas who applied for freeport status, because of course they can be inland too, who didn't get it? Only eight were announced at the budget, there'll be 10 overall. Over 30 applied though. Aren't those ports likely to suffer because the free ports will attract most investment, the so-called displacement effect?
1: No, not really, because if you actually look at the places that bid, uh, they didn't necessarily have the size and scale of land that you would need to make a Freeport a success. The thing that you need actually for a proper Freeport is you need large tranches of brownfield land that you can build manufacturing and logistics processes on. What free ports should not be about, which is where the Europeans have fallen down, is actually have large bonded warehouses, just literally large sheds that you call free ports. That doesn't really help anybody, and that does create displacement. I mean, I was always an advocate when I started campaigning for free ports nearly four years ago, that there probably shouldn't be very many. I actually think eight, you know, arguably ten across the devolved nations in total is probably too much. I mean, the alternative is, Liam, which, you know, I'd be more than happy to advocate, but you wouldn't get it past the Treasury, is to turn the whole of the UK into a free port, you know, lower lower taxes on businesses to invest and build big manufacturing processes. That's what the UK version of free ports are, are actually focused on. But obviously, given that that's not a possibility, then I think they need to be focused in the areas of highest deprivation. Because really, if you're going to look at big logistics and manufacturing processes, they tend to be drawn towards post-industrial areas anyway so what's the thing that is going to tip that area over the top compared to say Rotterdam, France, Germany or elsewhere in the world so you're not really I don't think we're competing nationally.
2: You mentioned there in passing wouldn't it be great if the whole of the UK was a free port and yet your party and you're increasingly seen as a leading conservative politician Ben despite your relative youth despite the fact that you ply your trade exclusively for now on on side. To what extent do you think the party has changed its ideological spots, if you like, with this budget? It's a very big spending budget. We're taking on huge amounts of
1: government debt. Does that concern you? In the short term, it it doesn't. And I think you're right. I actually think the party has taken on the character of Boris and the Prime Minister because, you know, he was a mayor. He was the mayor of London for a long time. And I think he understands that there has to be this synergy between the public and private sector. it doesn't matter how much you want to attract private investment. If the infrastructure is not there, if you don't have the airports, the roads, the rail, the buses, if you don't have the port infrastructure, which often, especially in the UK, will require a level of public investment, then you can't match that with the private investment. The decision-making doesn't necessarily bother me. And obviously, we're in the unique set of circumstances that is COVID and the recovery from the pandemic. And you've got to be careful not to not to choke out any potential recovery, because when I speak to businesses, both locally and nationally, there seems to be a huge pent up pressure for businesses to want to get back out and invest when the restrictions go. You want to allow those businesses to use that energy to do just that. What you don't want to do is then hit them with a reduction in spending or a second round of austerity, where there is a lack of confidence in the UK because all of a sudden the government have tightened its belts and all of a sudden businesses think well hang on if the UK government's tightening its belts then maybe our investment is best spent elsewhere because they're not investing so why should we so there is this kind of dance that you have to do with big international investors and getting big international capital to come to the UK which isn't as straightforward as spend or not spend it's it's a bit of a Goldilocks syndrome if you ask me.
2: Aren't there dangers though with a government debt to GDP ratio over 100% aren't there dangers with relying on the Bank of England to basically buy up vast swathes of government debt?
1: Well, there absolutely are. And I think there's been a lot of lessons learned since the crash in 2007, 2008. And again, it comes back to the balancing act. You'd rather see uh, debt levels come down significantly below 100% of GDP. And ideally, we'd like to start getting back into a surplus, not just for the deficit, but with the debt in, in hopefully the not too distant future, which is going to become harder because of COVID, right? But It's always that balancing act. It's not easy. Um, I absolutely would say I do not envy either Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak of the decisions that they've got to make right at this moment in time, because irrespective of the decisions that they do make, there will always be somebody that will feel that it's wrong. And, you know, I don't think anybody can sit here and judge genuinely on a situation that's never occurred before, because it's not like a normal recession, is it, either, because it's self-imposed. I do think we'll bounce back, and as we've seen from some of the official data, we think we're going to bounce back significantly quicker than we thought we originally would because of this kind of artificial self-imposed recession. And so changing the economic climate at the moment when there is this feeling that it's self-imposed might be slightly premature.
2: And finally, Ben, what's the one issue, the one policy area where you want to see the cabinet focus now that you feel maybe that they're not focused on?
1: Well, I, I want the—I mean—the the budget was a great start, but that's what it was. It was a start. I think they need to con- concentrate and double down on levelling up. I mean, it's a bit of frustration for all of us that the pandemic has obviously taken up—and rightly so—everybody's time over the last twelve, eighteen months. But what we now need to do is—you know—this government was elected on a promise to level up areas that have been neglected for decades. There are a lot of towns and a lot of villages that voted Conservative, in particular Teesside, for the first time. I do definitely buy into the view that these these votes are being lent to the Conservative Party. They need to show those people that they, they can deliver because I'm always a view of that people want to be proven right and I do think people want to be able to vote Conservative again and say I was right to change my mind and I was right to vote for the Conservatives for the first time so I'm going to do it again. But at this moment in time I think they need to do a lot more to show that and hopefully as we come out of the pandemic and we start to Relax restrictions and come through a recovery that they, they will double down on it because that's the thing that will deliver another conservative majority in 2024 if they want one because uh, without it i think they'll struggle
2: in the telegraph allison on thursday the day this podcast comes out i've written a, a write-up of that interview with ben houch yes. and it, it it noses as we say in journalism on get carter as michael Caine rode the east coast main line up to the northeast yeah. in the early 70s with that fantastic uh, theme tune really a, a, a britain divided the bright lights of london and then the grim industrial decline of the northeast now the northeast is becoming hopefully a, a, a litmus test the epitome of leveling up under ben houchen's leadership he's quite an interesting young man definitely one to watch and literally while we were listening to that interview allison we've learnt that that investment that Ben Houchen hinted at, a £140 million deal with the US industrial giant GE committing to a new wind turbine factory on Teesside, over 2,000 jobs, has literally just been announced. So we're right up to the minute here on Planet Normal as ever. But I would say to you as a a very close watcher of politics, which I know you are, Velma, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would say Ben Houchen buy his shares early because I think he's going to go places in national politics not just on Teesside.
0: I love listening to him Liam he's so impressive the idea that he was born in 1986 (laughs) makes me feel like a kind of like a dinosaur but it was really good wasn't it to hear that he wanted to have a real life before politics suspicious of career politicians and as someone myself who comes from a post-industrial region sadly that's always a very sad title for a place and it was genuinely exciting to think that there can be reinvention for the 21st century. And I know we're in this COVID lull and depression at the moment, but maybe these free ports can catalyse these regions. I mean, I think something that's interesting in terms of he talked about the budget and the thing that's emerging this week, which we didn't get to touch on last week when you discoursed so eloquently on the budget. I mean...
2: Oh, don't say that. <laughs> Go on, say it again. Go on.
0: I was going to say, just, you know, just enjoy it while you can. <laughs> was it strategically confused, Liam? Because Rishi seemed to have two messages. Conservatives are no longer the party of austerity, but hang on, we can take the tough decisions that need to balance the books.
2: They're trying to have it both ways, aren't they? They're trying to be cakeist, yeah. as critics of Boris Johnson say, having their cake. And eat it. Ben Houchen epitomizes that pragmatism, what works. Let's not have ideological battles, he says. We need to spend the money to generate growth, to pay back our debts, is an argument we're going to be hearing more and more of from the Conservatives. But I thought it was a good idea to have him on Planet Normal. I'm glad you enjoyed listening to him. We cover COVID, don't we? We cover the statistics. We cover the pandemic. But this podcast is about a lot more than COVID. So let's talk about Megan and Harry, because a lot of people are talking about it by the water cooler and in the pub, if they were allowed to be at work by the water cooler and in the pub. (laughs) Uh, And let's also talk about what's happening in our economy. This is a huge moment for the British economy the next three to six months as we try and recover from this lockdown, as we try and get growth going to stop that wave of unemployment. And it's great to see real progress in the Northeast. One of our poorest regions, but a region where, and I've been there many times over the last three or four years covering the story, a region where there really is a sense now of palpable optimism.
0: Now on to our listener emails. We really are spoilt for choice this week. So many wonderful messages from you, which you send to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. This is from Ralph, bang up to the minute. Can I suggest we invite Queen Oprah for a state visit and give her a history lesson on the monarchy, voting and where the money comes from for that little ginger gentleman to maintain his lifestyle and security? Then we should take her to meet Auntie Anne to talk about titles and what the word service really means. Then a trip to Kensington Palace and Frogmore to show her what appalling conditions poor Megan had to live in and introduce her to all the flunkies who were there to deal with every one of Megan's whims.
2: From a rather different neck of the woods, this is from Jonathan. Dear Alison and Liam, I'm a sixth former who was due to finally return to school this week, but according to the lateral flow test I was mandated to take, I now have to self-isolate for another week and a half. Given that 60% of such positive tests are false positives, and given that I've rarely left the house in the past couple of weeks, specifically because I was returning to school, I'm furious about the government's obsession with a disease that has had no negative impact on me nor anyone I know. Some may think one week isn't much, but every day shutting our homes has a serious impact. I have friends, previously perfectly healthy, who've resorted to self-harm and have struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts. No one's denying COVID isn't a real and deadly disease, certainly not me. But the government has consistently misled us about when lockdown might be lifted, dangling dates as lights at the end of the tunnel, then whipping them away and retaining these dreadful lockdowns. Thanks, Planet Normal, for being the only balanced, fair and kind voice in the media. You've really helped me over recent months. Jonathan.
0: Oh, Jonathan, I'm so sorry to hear that. This is from Nick, talking about the gloom and doom brothers. Professor Witty stated today that speeding up the removal of lockdown will cause COVID to spread as younger people who have not been vaccinated will catch it. So what? We know that they will not die from it. And even if they get it, they are then immune to it. Surely this is a good thing. And of course, they can no longer give it to older people who could die from it as they have been vaccinated. Moreover, it seems to have escaped Professor Whitty's notice that in many parts of the country, the number of cases are so small that they are no longer recorded. Surely if it doesn't exist, they can't catch it. Professor Whitty is out of order and should resign. His inability to see the harm lockdown is causing is unbelievable. It is clear that he is now the main reason why Boris Johnson is continuing to be so unnecessarily cautious. Please keep up your good work. Planet Normal is an island of sanity in a mad world.
2: Hear, hear to that. This is from Jenny. I love Planet Normal and look forward to it every week. I felt compelled to write after a trip to the supermarket with my daughter, who's almost 14. I watched her, panicked slightly in the mask, breathing very shallowly, jumping to move away from anyone that came within five feet. She's gone from being a gregarious, outgoing kid with the world at her feet to someone petrified by a trip to the shops. I'm furious, says Jenny. She's perfectly healthy, nothing to worry about, even if she does catch COVID. Both of us and her brother are without any underlying health conditions. But her relationships with her friends have suffered. My daughter's now scared. In her most impressionable years, she's been taught the world isn't safe. Scared because she's been fed a diet of face masks, stupid TV adverts, and 12 months of constant restrictions. I'm horrified our children have become the sacrificial lambs of a government that refuses to stand up to the teaching unions and SAGE. I'm generally worried how she's going to cope wearing a mask all day at school and being tested twice a week. Thanks, says Jenny, for all you're doing.
0: We've had a lot of those,
2: Many, many, many emails. Parents
0: very, very upset about children being subject to unnatural and pointless measures. At the other end of the age scale, this week, relatives of residents in care homes were allowed to go in and great, great breakthrough, Liam. Hold the hand of their loved one. If you can imagine a world where that was ever banned. Christine says, I'm delighted to say that I had a wonderful indoor visit with my mum yesterday and was able to hold a hand for the first time in over a year. Wow. Mum's Care Home has been very good at following guidance and are implementing named visitor as well as continuing with window visits for other family members However, I feel concerned that the updated government guidance to care homes states that during an outbreak, that means two or more related cases in the home, all visits must stop for 28 days. This is such a long time for residents to be denied even a wave through a closed window. The 28-day rule was brought in by Public Health England back in March 2020, when very little was known about the virus. The 28 days was because residents in care homes were considered to be so vulnerable. It was suggested as this is twice the 14-day incubation period. Recently, the isolation period for the general public was reduced from 14 to 10 days because the new evidence suggested infection was minimal after 10 days. As this is the case, and also since all residents and staff have had at least one vaccine dose, which gives very good protection, surely this 28-day rule should now be changed. Yes, residents will always be more vulnerable than the general population to, for example, infections such as flu, but homes have never closed for this prolonged period for flu. The elderly people are more vulnerable to falls, but we do not stop them from walking. So we must not treat COVID in a different way. It will be with us for a long time and we must live with it, not just exist. Well said, Christine. Just to end with two short ones, Liam. This is from Walter. As an 82-year-old grandfather, I couldn't agree more regarding the lengths of time left for people my age. Roll on the summer, my annual visit to Edgbaston for test cricket and one or more pints. Best regards, Walter from County Down. Well said, Walter. And you go Ten and enjoy. or more. You... <laughs> 10 4, yeah. you go and enjoy yourself despite chris witty go and have a lovely time and finally halligan co-pilot halligan here we go this was from jeff who congratulated me on my asking liam about the budget he said well done Alison, for having the bravery to be stupid <laughs> and uh, that's one for the obituary isn't it <laughs> Pearson was fearless in her idiocy when questioning her learned co-pilot and on that note
2: (laughs) that's going on the new Planet Normal mugs which are coming we're coming coming. they're coming they're coming and that's it for another week from Planet Normal our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reasoned views and courageous stupidity (laughs) We'll be back responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon.
0: We're going to have a week dedicated to 18th century novels, one week, (laughs) Halligan, and then then you're going to see what I'm made of. Do please leave us a five star rating and a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. That really helps others to find us helping the Planet Normal family to grow.
2: Look, I, I know about Daniel Defoe and all those guys. You know, <laughs> you wait. I, I, I watched Robinson Crusoe on Saturday mornings when I was a kid. <laughs> and just before we go, you know lots about us. And now we'd like to hear more from you. We're running a short survey to find out what you like about our podcasts and how we can improve them. You can find the survey link in the episode description. It takes less than five minutes. And at the end, you can enter a prize draw to win one of three hundred pound John Lewis gift vouchers. So as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett. And a special thanks to Rhys Gunter and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Say safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me.
0: Tobias Smollett. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>